begin with the end in mind, wrote Stephen Covey in his highly acclaimed Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And every architect or engineer or builder of families or of vocation or even builder of humanity knows that that is wise advice. When I sit down with a young couple to talk about their marriage in their premarital counseling, I always ask them to write out five goals for their marriage that they'd like to say uh, at the end of their life that they worked for. And they always look at me with surprise. Oh, that might be a good idea, they say. Well, for each of us, it is a good idea. And in this morning's parable, we are offered just such an opportunity. It shows us the way that we live our lives in some way sets the trajectory of how we end our lives. This parable is not easily heard especially for those of us considered to be affluent. This church certainly is, and most of us would be included in that. It comes to us as part of the parables that have been connected from Luke's story or gospel since the 14th chapter through the 15th chapter, now into the 16th chapter from which I have been preaching May the Spirit of God open up to us a new understanding of this word as it is revealed to us in the 16th chapter, verses 19 through 31. There was a a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. Then the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. The rich man got to be the rich man because he knew how to manage and give orders, and even now in his torment he's still doing it. Send Lazarus down to me. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. The rich man, still still wheeling and dealing, said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. 
Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them, that is, the scriptures. Still not beaten, the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to the scriptures, to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. On the surface, this parable should scare us to death. Our first impulse is to see it as a clear-cut morality tale. Like Dickens' Christmas Carol only, Marley the Ghost does not change the rich man's mind when he comes to him in his place, and the rich man only becomes more miserly and disconnected and mean. And on the surface, as we read this text, if that's the case, then the point is that we better become more generous and less miserly and giving, or we will end up in the same fires of torment as did the rich man. And since this is the beginning of the stewardship season, you're supposed to laugh. We call it claiming the dream. There's a temptation for me to preach just this point. Nothing like a little threat of fire and damnation to get us to open our wallets. I remember attending a funeral a while back in Atlanta at a church about four times the size of Riverside. When the pastor spoke of the deceased person by telling a story that he had visited him a week before his death. He said, we started talking about things, and for some reason we ended up talking about the capital campaign going on at the church. And on his deathbed, he wrote out the church a $10,000 check. I couldn't help but think that, you know, I'm sure that it was the pastor who probably brought up the capital campaign for this man on his deathbed. And whether right out in front or at least insinuatingly so, the pastor suggested that it might be a good idea to give the church 10 grand in order to have his own fire escape. Remember the parable of the soils and the sower when the sower goes out to throw the seed and some falls on rocky ground and doesn't take root and some falls among the thorns and does take root and grows up but is choked by the thorns and some finds fertile ground and grows up and produces an enormous yield. Remember that? My sense is that Jesus told that parable, the first of all the parables that would follow, the first parable in order to help us understand how we are supposed to actually understand parables. So that the first impulse or the first sense of its meaning may, in fact, be the rocky soil, as is the meaning I just mentioned, that this is meant to scare us. And the second level of meaning, I think, among the thorns, and it's, it's valid in a sense, but I don't think it goes deep enough to the fertile ground. The second level of meaning that we can draw from this, much like Bill was teaching the kids, We're all in this thing together. We're all connected. 
We don't live our lives independently from everyone else. We live interdependently in a relationship, certainly economically true in our global world, certainly environmentally true in our world. Biologically, they are determining that it is true, that we're really more related than we think, genetically, in the least, and humanly, it is more real than we know. My welfare is dependent on your welfare, and your welfare is dependent on my welfare. We are not individual planets. We are all connected in the solar system. And I think that's the second layer of understanding of this text. If the rich man had understood this, he would have seen that the welfare of Lazarus, the poor man at his gate, was related to his own. Not only in his life, but even in his death. And he would have probably taken more seriously the responsibility he should have felt for the man lying there in his sores. But for my money, at least, that still doesn't go deep enough. For what it's worth, it probably won't buy you a cup of coffee. For to me, at least, the first most fertile meaning of this parable takes root in the deep ground that Jesus came to plow when he sent his disciples out on their first preaching mission, he said to them, go only to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And the point is that the way that the kingdom of God comes to us is only through our lostness and our lastness and our leastness and our deadness. That's why he came, to save the last, the least, the lost, and to give witness to the promise of the resurrection of the dead. And while the good news for those of us who understand that we are lost or last or least or even dead in some way, is that God comes to us through that. The not-so-good news is that when we think that we are found or important or bulletproof, that ain't good news if that's what it looks like to be the rich man in torment. The not-so-good news is when we think that we are responsible ultimately for fixing ourselves in the world and for managing ourselves and for saving ourselves and for getting ourselves into the kingdom of God in whatever means, this is not good news. Let me make my case. To understand this, you have to understand that in Jesus' day, those who were well off financially and with health, were blessed by God. That's why they were well off and, and, and well. They had God's blessing. They had obviously lived a life or done something in their life to deserve God's blessing, and the result was their riches. And then, therefore, if you're not well off, 
and you're pitiful and you're a leper or whatever your illness or your state of economic being, then you must have done something to receive God's judgment. And it's as clear as it can be painted, the picture that Jesus paints, the dramatic contrast between the rich man who was dressed in Armani suits and Egyptian linen shirts, who sat at table every meal every day and ate sumptuously like Henry VIII, and the beggar Lazarus, who couldn't even walk but could only lie at his gate, dependent on whatever morsel the rich man's servants would throw to him as they passed in their carriage going back and forth through the gate. So pitiful is he that the dogs were licking his sores. This is not, as we understand, dogs. This is not like my favorite dog in all the world, Yates the dog, my dog licking me. In those days, dogs were the personification of Satan. They roamed in packs and ate corpses. So to have his sores licked was just one step away from his death. The contrast Jesus paints between the rich man and Lazarus, who, by the way, is the only name mentioned in any parable Jesus told. Lazarus is the only time a character gets named. This personification is not meant to be missed. This rich man was so blessed by God, and Lazarus was so God-forsaken. Maybe I've lost you with this. Maybe I've gone deeper than the parable requires. But hang in there. I'm trying to till the soil. There's no more stark contrast. If you want to know the truth of it, both of those characters are within each of us. There is the rich man who soars at 10,000 feet, free as a bird can be like an eagle. And there is the worm, Lazarus, lying on the side, unable to feed himself, completely dependent on a handout. The eagle soars, the worm lies. Then all of a sudden, there's this moment of switch, this complete upside-down turn of events. Lazarus dies. He doesn't even get a burial. The rich man's carriage rolls by. The servants jump out, get a couple of sticks, and push him over into the, into the ditch. You remember the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigsby Nobody came. In Lazarus' case, he didn't even get a burial. The rich man dies and the whole town shows up because he had been the great patron. He had built the first congregational Hebrew church. He had been the patron of so many of the benefactors in town. They all showed up to sing his praises. And in the great reversal of fortunes after death, Lazarus is up flitting around 
the worm is now flying like the eagle flitting around on the clouds with Abraham while the rich man is now down in Hades like the worm unable to get his head up high enough to catch a breath. Aha! It's unexpected. The rich man's not supposed to die. He's wealthy. When you have God's blessing, you don't suffer things like that, but he did, so okay. And it turns out in this story that we are reminded that death is the great equalizer. In the kingdom of God, it turns things upside down. Let me remind you of one thing here, and that is that this parable is not talking about what heaven is really like or what hell is really like. It is a parable. Parables are not meant to be understood or taken literally. It is a parable. Jesus didn't really tell us what heaven is like or hell is like. Somehow we've developed the idea that we float around on clouds in heaven and we are burning in the torments of hell in, uh, in hell. Maybe that's Dante, I don't know. That's not what this parable is trying to say. It's simply throwing the reversal into our face and saying to us this, if you think that you are not lost but found, if you think that you are ultimately blessed by God and not like those poor sinners lying there in the gutter, if you think you're not dead or dying, you've got a rude awakening in front of you. Ouch. This is not about buying our way to heaven. Let me make that clear. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I give away all my possessions, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Someone asked me what I was preaching today, and I told them, they went, oh no, I guess that means I have to sell everything I own and I can't buy any more new shoes. Let me see if I can say this a little clearer. There is something in us that believes that we, by our hard work, can win the love of God. But, ironically, it is only when we have failed, when we are lost and last and least and in some way dead, maybe dead to our egos, do we finally open ourselves up to what this incredible gift of God's grace is all about. This is what plows up the soil, you see. The rich man was not sent into torment because he was rich any more than Lazarus was sent to Abraham because he was poor. There is no moral virtue in wealth or poverty unless it is being misused. The gulf between Abraham and and the rich man and Lazarus was not to be crossed, he was told. And it turns out that this gulf is dug by our own narcissistic egos. I cannot let myself face the fact that I'm lost. 
or least? Is it eternal? Only if we let it be. In the end, the good, good news is that Jesus is willing to come to us wherever we are, even in the torment of Hades. For we are told that at his death and resurrection, even the gates of hell could not prevail against him. And we confess when we stand and say the Apostles' Creed, dead and buried he descended into hell, that even into the torment of Hades, Jesus will come once again offering his hand to the lost, the last and the least and the dead. And it is for each one, even in torment, to decide if they want to follow. So the question now for us is, what are we going to do with our perfectly good but lost lives? Are we going to wait until we die or use them now instead to give thanks to God through compassion? and generosity and solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are equally as lost as we are. For having been lost, we also are found. Maybe this is a stewardship sermon after all. 